It is a field outside of Bethlehem. Shepherds have been out watching their flocks at night. Angels appear, scare the woolies out of them. I'll let that sink in. But there's good news. And that is that a Savior has been born for them, who is Christ the Lord. And they could find him in town. These shepherds were the first ones to be invited to see the baby Jesus. So what they did next was very fitting. Luke chapter 2, verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off to Bethlehem and found Jesus and Joseph and Mary exactly as they had been told. And the rest, as they say, is history. Only not just history. It is history so powerful and so significant that here we are this morning recognizing this event that happened some 2018 years ago. And since that day, Bethlehem, a very old city of not much prominence, has been the scene of all kinds of possession and repossession, destruction and rebuilding, agreements and broken agreements, so that as currently as the past couple of years, today it is still a hot spot as to who owns so much stock in it. Bethlehem. Old little town of Bethlehem, it turns out, is a big town, bigger than itself, if you will. In a story called The Last Battle, the last installment in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis includes in the imagery uh, this imaginary land of Narnia, a stable, that amazingly, when someone looks inside of it, is actually bigger than it is on the outside. And Lucy points out, in our world too, a stable once held something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. We don't know for sure that Jesus was born in a stable, but we do know that he was born in a small, history-torn town, a village about five miles south of Jerusalem, small enough that when Micah, the prophet, writes about it some 750 years before the birth of Jesus. He says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This whole Christmas season, as you will hear again and again the mention of this little district of Judea, I want to remember together the words of the shepherds as they looked to each other after the angels had left, and they said, let us go to Bethlehem. That's what I want us to do. We're going to do that through the pages of God's word. We're going to visit the city of David, the place where Jesus was born and placed in an animal feeding trough. And we will find Bethlehem 
being prepared all along for Emmanuel to make his appearance on earth. We're going to find stories and insights and histories that I hope will make our appreciation for the whole Christmas season this year deeper. So let us go to Bethlehem. Are you ready? I want to acknowledge, by the way, my brother, my blood brother, Jim Nichols, who originally put this series together a few years ago, and I thought the idea was a good one. And I wanted us to make this journey our journey to Bethlehem, the Central Christian Church. And hopefully Jim doesn't see this or he'll be asking for royalties or something as we're going along. If we could back up from the story of Jesus' birth, we would see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that in the earthly family line of Jesus, more than a thousand years before was a man named Salmon, who apparently married Rahab. They had a son named Boaz, and guess where Boaz lived? You'd never guess. In Bethlehem, where Boaz married Ruth, and they gave birth, she gave birth to a son named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse, still living in Bethlehem, became the father of a boy named David, Israel's king. We're going to talk about David on December the 26th, especially. He's the reason that Bethlehem became known as the city of David. But for that to happen, it means there had to be a family line to get there. And today we're stepping into that long story by way of this couple, Boaz and Ruth. It wasn't as if Boaz and Ruth had met in middle school and then they grew up to marry their childhood sweethearts. There was something much stronger than remarkable coincidence going on as these two met and became husband and wife. Something significant happening in their lives. So I want you with me, please, to open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Ruth. That book that is named after Ruth, called Ruth. And most of you already know the end of this book. If you were to go to chapter 4, verse 17, there near the end, it says the women of the neighborhood, which is very interesting that they did this. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So there it is right at the end of the book of Ruth, a happy ending. By the way, that's... My goal for this sermon this morning, a happy ending for you, a happy ending for every person listening to this message. It might be that seeing a happy ending in your life the way it is right now today doesn't seem very easy for you. And if that's true, then I want to tell you this morning, here in person or online, if it's true of you that you're having a hard time picturing a happy ending in your life, this is exactly the story I think you need to be looking at today. It opens with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law reeling from unthinkable loss. All three of them, in just a few verses at the beginning of Ruth, have become widows. Naomi has watched the death of her husband and both of her sons. 
Ruth and Orpah have watched the death of their husbands, the death of their father-in-law, the death of their brothers-in-law. You can't make this stuff up. All three of them are grieving together, and to top it off, they're from different countries. Their connection is gone. Ruth and Orpah are from the land of Moab. Naomi is from Bethlehem. The famine that caused her to leave Bethlehem 10 years before is over. So it's time for Naomi to go back, she concludes. Time to go back. Go to the next chapter of her life, which has turned into a tragic story of poverty with no good ending in sight. Listen to the sense of desperation in Naomi's words to Ruth and Orpah. Chapter 1, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Look down to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Ouch. Can you hear the scuttlebutt in town? I want to walk through the story of Ruth, which is hard to do in a less than 30 minutes of time. I want to walk through the story of Ruth by looking at the characters this morning, because each one of them has some good qualities that we can learn from, and I hope that we will, but there's going to be an even more important look at the way events turned around for Ruth and her mother-in-law. Keep that in mind, because the point I want us all to see is how the Lord has done the same for potentially every person listening today. First, let's talk about a wise mother-in-law. I was officiating a funeral service for one of the ladies of 
uh, our church in St. Joe, Indiana while we were there. And her son-in-law, Chuck, one of the elders of the church, I remember, and I joked about it in the message, had a bumper sticker on the trunk of his car. It read, mother-in-law in trunk. And that gave me something to remember out loud that day because Chuck and his mother-in-law actually had a really good relationship that they could joke like that. That's a rare thing, it seems, for some. And Naomi breaks this typical mold of the mother-in-law jokes. Something about this woman impacted her daughter-in-law. Have you heard that behind every successful man is a great woman and a surprised mother-in-law? Something about this woman impacted her mother-in-law. The God of Israel must have proven real in Ruth's sight as she watched because she made the choice to leave the gods of her homeland. Together, she and Ruth made the first journey to Bethlehem that we read about in Scripture. Naomi showed a lot of wisdom as she advised her daughter-in-law there in Bethlehem. So we're in Bethlehem now. The name of the, house, uh, the city means house of bread. And it is in Bethlehem, in this scene, the beginning of the wheat and then the barley harvest after there has been a famine. There's got to be a lot of joy in these harvest fields that after 10 years of famine are now producing grain. And it's harvest time. This harvest is different. God has given a system to take care of the poor in Israel. When grain was harvested, the grain that was missed, the grain that was left lying there on the ground, was supposed to be left there for people who had no other way to have food. And that's where we get the concept of gleaning. Ruth went to glean in the fields of a man named Boaz, a man from the same clan as her father-in-law, Limelech, her in-laws. Read the story and you'll see how right away Boaz took a liking to this woman. He had his workers leave extra grain behind for Ruth. She came home from gleaning with a lot of grain and with some good news that she had found the field of a distant relative of theirs. So her wise mother-in-law gave Ruth good advice. In fact, eventually she sent Ruth to follow up with the man who was showing her such favor. It was a harvest celebration. The timing was right to make an appeal. She won the heart of that man. Boaz wasn't going to let the sun set until he had taken the steps to make Ruth his wife. So when all of this shook down, it was going to be Ruth who really was helped. Naomi wasn't just meddling, wasn't just matchmaking. She was helping her as somebody who was thinking ahead and caring about her daughter-in-law's future. You know what? It's tough to find people who give you advice without ulterior motives these days. Kind of like your five-year-old son suggesting maybe you would like a puppy for Christmas. Paul had a genuine friend like that in the form of a young man named Timothy. Listen to what he wrote about Timothy to the Philippians. 
Philippians 2, verse 20, he says about him, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Look at Naomi, and here's some advice. When you find someone like Timothy, when you find someone like Naomi for a friend, hold on tight to that person. Don't let them go. There's another important character in this story, and of course, that's Ruth. She was a loyal woman. Have you noticed loyalty is a quality that is fading away these days? Loyalty to marriage has been taking a hit for years. The likelihood that a young adult is going to change vocations a few times before retirement is now the norm. And I've watched over the years in the church how those same loose standards are being applied more and more to people's relationship with their church. Now I wonder what would happen if we took some of those loose loyalties, some of those loose approaches, and we applied them to some other areas of life. For instance, if your refrigerator worked 18 hours a day, would that make it dependable? If you could count on your car to start two out of four times, that's pretty good. Would you trust it? If you showed up for work four out of five days a week, would you describe yourself as a reliable employee? If you made your mortgage or rent payment 10 out of 12 times this past year, hey, that's pretty good. Think the bank or the landlord would feel that way about it? If your computer, now I'm meddling, didn't freeze up 75% of the time, would that work for you? If your mailman delivered the mail three days a week and skipped the other three, would you say he was trustworthy? Here's one. If a parachute worked 98% of the time, that's pretty good. 98%. Would you use it? I just wonder. I just wonder, what do you think we should call loyal when it comes to our consistency to worship, to give, to serve, to keep the church functioning? See, loyalty is an important virtue when it comes to the things in life that really matter. Ruth is a really great example of loyalty, and from what we read in the story, we can see that in her. She left her homeland to go to a place where she had never been. She determined to follow the God of her departed husband, the God of Naomi. She took on the obligation to care for her needy mother-in-law. And we don't know exactly what family that she left behind in Moab, but she did. And we know that Ruth made a vow to stay with Naomi until death do us part. I've been very conscious the past few years, especially, of the loyalty that so many of our older couples at Central Christian Church demonstrate to their marriages. I want to point that out this morning. I've watched husbands and wives take their vows seriously so it seems that their greatest ambition becomes to be loyal to that person to whom they have committed their life. 
Watch them. Look at them and consider their example. Thank them. Let it move you to a similar kind of quality in your marriage, if you're married, but in all kinds of places in life. It's one of the ways, I think, that you and I demonstrate that we are created in the image of a God in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Loyalty. Okay, take a wise mother-in-law, take a loyal woman, and then toss in a godly man who does what's right. This is really where I want to focus our attention this morning. I had never considered all that we can know about Boaz till looking at this more carefully. He was generous to a family that was down and out. He was kind, not only to the people he employed, that comes across in the story, but he was also kind to the foreigner who was gleaning in his fields. And he says he was because he admired her character. You've got to do some sanctified imagination here. I had a college professor tell me that you've got to do that sometimes. Sanctified imagination. But I wonder if Boaz had taken his experience in life as an outsider in the community and tried to use that to make sure that it wasn't repeated against somebody else. You see, Boaz, we know, was the son of Salmon and Rahab. The only other time before that we read about this woman, Rahab, and really learn about her is where we learn that she's a prostitute in the Canaanite city of Jericho. Remember? Rahab acted out of faith in the God of Israel to help the Israelites invade her own city, and because of it, she and her household were spared while everyone else in Jericho was wiped out. So Rahab, we read, and her household were placed outside and spared. And it says in Joshua 6 at the end, and she has lived in Israel to this day. Well, Salmon married the woman who was a foreigner and a former prostitute. Both the book of Hebrews and James applaud Rahab for her faith. But I can only imagine that mom's reputation would have made life growing up in the little town of Bethlehem a little bit challenging for Boaz. Can you use that sanctified imagination with me? But rather than becoming a bitter, vengeful, hateful man, Boaz turned his potentially destructive past into something for good. I've known some people who've done that sort of thing. People whose parents neglected or abused them when they were kids. And so they determined that when they grow up and become parents, they're going to love and nurture and get time to their children. People whose parents fought all the time, and so they grow up and determine that if they marry, they will never engage in contentious behavior with their spouse. People who were ridiculed or laughed at for the way that they looked or they spoke or something about them, and so they grow up to be very careful to give affirmation to people who struggle. 
That seems to be the kind of man that Boaz became. But you know what? The thing that's the greatest about him is the way that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. A what? I'm glad you asked that. A kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel. God set this up as a law for Israel, a goel. It meant that if a woman's husband died and she had never had sons to carry on the family name and to take care of her, that the next of kin had it on him. He took the responsibility to have sons with her. That law became looser during the lawless period of the judges, but there was still some sense of responsibility in the community for there to be a redemption, a, a kinsman redeemer for a woman who was put in this place. Women like Naomi and Ruth, whose husbands who had died, who didn't have sons, couldn't own land. And so there had to be someone in the family, a kinsman, who was willing to redeem the household of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Boaz was willing to be that man. Boaz would become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. But there was a nearer relative, one who had the first right of refusal, if you will, to the estate of Elimelech. And so Boaz went to work. He called a meeting at the city gate where all legal matters would be handled. He called together 10 of the elders of the city. He called there this nearer relative and the kinsmen there with him. I could picture this conversation. It must have gone something like this. Hey, cousin. I need to clarify your intentions concerning the field of Elimelech. Because if you don't want to buy it for yourself, I'm interested in it. I'd like to buy it. Well, sure, he said. After all, who's going to turn down a good deal on some property? Just one thing, Boaz added. Along with the property comes the obligation to marry Ruth, the Moabitess, Elimelech's daughter-in-law. Well, that changed things. The nearest of kin was already married, and the thought of bringing home another wife that day and saying, hey, guess what, honey? I was in town today, and I got a great deal on a field that we can add to our estate and a rival wife. That just didn't settle well with him. His first children would have been splitting up their inheritance with their children, Here's the thing, Boaz's plan worked. That day, Boaz became the kinsman redeemer to a noble woman. And God used that match that no one expected to bring about the birth of David, the king of Israel. Here's where the Christmas part kicks in. I know you're waiting for this. Because over a thousand years later, in the town of Bethlehem, in the city of David, there would be born from the lineage of Boaz and Ruth, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel. God had arranged that picture of his love for us all those years before when he gave to Israel the law of the kinsman redeemer. 
Nobody else, think about this, nobody else would lay claim to the sinners that Jesus died for. Not only could nobody else pay for them, but why would they? And yet Jesus deliberately, faithfully made the transaction. If you've never responded to his great love for you, let me ask you a question this morning. Is there some other person who would love you, who would even die for you, who would experience the equivalent of eternity in hell for you the way that our kinsman redeemer Jesus did? He took on our debt and even ourselves. He took us on our sins and all that we owed. And when he accepted us, he inherited all the baggage that came with it. You realize that the church is the bride of Christ that Jesus Christ bought with his own blood and that the day is coming when he is going to take the church to live with him to share his inheritance. Our kinsman redeemer. The story of Ruth and Boaz is much more than just some random love story. It's God's love story. And it foretells the story of the greatest love and the greatest rescue there ever was. And guess what? It even starts in the same city. Bethlehem. Love like this isn't something that you just let slip by. Think it through, consider your need, and act on that need today. I need a redeemer. You need a redeemer. And that, by the way, is the only way that our stories can have a happy ending. Jesus Christ came to be our kinsman redeemer. So, let us go to Bethlehem. Let's find the one who's there, who's willing to take us, to redeem us. Today, if that's you, you've never, you've never sealed the deal. You've never completed becoming close to Jesus Christ like he has invited you to do. And we want to invite you on his behalf to do that. If you've already done that, then... With me today, can you just step back and wonder for a moment at God's plan and look at what he has done for us? And let's let that move us into this season of celebration with a greater, deeper appreciation for what he's done. If you're online this morning and you've never accepted Jesus as your Redeemer, then we're inviting you to make that decision today. You need to hear what it means to become a Christian. If you don't know about that, then we want to ask you to contact us, cccrockford.org slash connect. Get in touch with us, and right away we'll get back with you and we'll talk to you about your relationship with the Lord. Let's open a dialogue. If you're here in person this morning, that's you. And I know that there are some people. I've tried to get around and greet everybody today. I know I shook a couple of hands this morning of people who need to make this decision. And I'm praying today that that will be you. And so I'm going to step down here to the front in a moment as we're singing a song together. And I want to ask you, just come speak to me and say, hey, Sherm, 
you know what? I'm finally going to make that decision today. I'm ready. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story. What a beautiful picture of loyalty, of nobility, of love. The picture of rescue from destitution and grief in a dim future completely turned around by a wonderful Redeemer. God, that's our story in your family. Here we sit this morning, most of us, people who have been redeemed like that. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that that invitation, that, uh, that desire that you uh, have expressed to each of us is still open to every person who would respond. And so today I pray, Lord, that your love will not be spurned, that the great cost that you are willing to uh, expend on our behalf would not go to waste. Even right now, work on each of our hearts and shape us to become the people you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.